Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, last week we finished, it was actually a two-part series, we finished chapter 11. Chapter 11 is really a condensed rendering of all, not all, but a a certain, you know, kind of a cross-section of men and women who lived during the time of the Old Testament books, who lived their lives by faith. And uh, they were looking forward to the fulfillment of, of God's promises. And so it was just a, we just kind of looked at their lives and how they live by faith. And now we get to chapter 12. And chapter 12, really, the very first couple verses, it really, you know, chapter and verse, this really belongs with chapter 11 in a sense. But now it's an invitation. There's, it starts with a therefore, and it's an invitation for you and I to follow in the footsteps of these great men and women of faith that we we talked about in uh, chapter 11. And uh, what's interesting about chapter 12 is that uh, it very it starts out basically likening your and my faith or comparing your and my faith to the ancient uh, foot races that were held in Greece. And, and uh as you go through this chapter, it really continues that metaphor of of running a race, really, I think, throughout the whole chapter, in the first two verses specifically. But I think as we go through the chapter, we'll see that uh, verses 1 and 2 is talks about running the race. And we'll look at that this morning. Verses 3 through 11 is discipline for running the race, discipline for being in the race, for competing. Verses 12 through 17, I really looked at that and thought, well, it looks like handling injuries during the race. What do you do when you're injured? What do you do when you stumble and you fall? And so we'll look at that as well. Verses 18 through 24 is keeping the finish line in sight. It's so important when you're running a race. And then verses 25 to 29, listening to your team captain. If you've ever been involved in sports, you know, you have, you have a coach or a captain, you really need to listen to them. Uh, you know, you need, really need to follow them. And so we're going to look at that. Uh, but beginning with verses 1 and 2, running the race, let's read it. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mentioned the ancient foot race of Greece. That actually took place in an enclosure which was known as a stadium, and uh, it was actually 606 foot 9 inches long. So they must have measured them. And that, that was known as the stadium in ancient Greece. And that was where these foot races would take place. And the writer here is talking about being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And so if you, if you picture yourself running this foot race inside of this stadium, there's all these people, all these spectators around this stadium watching the you know the competition watching the race uh, for you and I we're running a race of faith and for you and I it's there's not just simply spectators watching us but the Bible says here that they're witnesses we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that word literally means martyrs now it doesn't necessarily mean that each of them have been killed for their faith although many of them many of them were. But there were witnesses who were willing to lay down their lives for their testimony of Christ. And uh, we talked about them. They're the saints in chapter 11. But they're not just those saints. They're all the other saints down through the ages. And uh, they're even probably, if you had godly family members that have went on before you. Now, you know, I've been to some funerals and and weddings and different things of unbelievers. And, you know, I remember one wedding I went to and and, uh, 
these 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 people that I that I used to work with, they were they weren't believers, but you know they were they were kind of paying tribute to like I forgot her name, like Aunt Bessie or something like that, you know. And oh, she was such a good woman. She's looking down on us today, you know. And they had that oh sweet Aunt Bessie, you know. Um, if she didn't have a relationship with Jesus, she's not amongst that great cloud of witnesses, right? Um, but does this mean this passage of scripture mean that you and I are being watched by saints? Who have gone on before us? You ever thought about that? I've thought about that. Or like my father passed away. He was a godly man. Is is he watching me right now as I'm teaching this message? Well, scripturally, First Corinthians four nine, Paul talks about this. He says, "For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men." And I believe he's referring to men on earth, men who were alive at the time. They were a spectacle to them. But he also mentions the angels in heaven, that the apostles were a spectacle to angels in heaven. So I think it's quite possible that angels are watching us. Uh, In fact, Matthew 18.10, Jesus said, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I think that's where we get the idea of the guardian angels that are watching over us, or watching over children anyways, watching over us. But you know, when you get to, there's Paul wrote, and you know, he's writing about a man, but we all, many of us believe that this is Paul himself, talks about being translated into the third heaven. you remember that story? And what did he say that he experienced when he went there? He said he heard inexpressible words. One thing that he didn't say is, hey, Peter, man, you got to check this out. I was up there, and I saw you sneak falafels at the last agape feast. I saw you do it, man. <laughs> you know, There's no mention about what he saw watching people. Uh, you know, personally, the thought of having a loved one or Abraham or whoever watching you and I living our life of faith, I mean, that encourages me. It's a great thought. It's comforting, especially for loved ones that have passed on for each one of us. I mean, I've, I've said that, you know, sometimes I wonder, is my dad watching me? But personally, I don't believe that's the case. And here's why. Paul wrote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Put yourself in that position. You've, you've just entered into the presence of the Lord. You, you've passed away. You've just entered into the presence of the Lord. Are you really going to care about what's going on back here at earth? I mean, honestly. I, it's nice to think, well, they're watching me. They're so concerned. No, I think when we come before the presence of the Lord, we're going to be so busy worshiping Him, so awestruck at his glory, so, so in love with Him and thankful for what the sacrifice that He did for us, I, don't, I think that's going to be just a distant memory. I, I don't think we're going to be focused on that. I think we're going to be focused and mesmerized with Jesus himself. So, you know, scripturally, I, I don't know, but I, personally, I don't believe they are watching you and I, uh, watching everything. I, you know, I think these are not necessarily witnesses of us, but witnesses to us. It's almost like a relay race. You know, they've ran their leg of the race. They've gone there, they've done their course, their lap or whatever, and now they've passed the baton on to you and I. And now it's your and my turn to run our lap of the race. There are witnesses to us, their life. They lived it in faith. They looked to the promises. They endured hardships. They, they, they were faithful. And now it's your and my turn to carry that baton of faith and to run our race. And so they're witnesses to us, I believe. You know, you and I are soon, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you and I are soon going to join, sooner than some of us think, we're going to join that cloud of witnesses. Well, how have we ran our race of faith? Did we carry that baton? Were we faithful? Something to think about. And so he writes here, he says, Since we are surrounded by such or so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. 
Again, the metaphor of running a race, laying aside any encumbrances, stripping off any unnecessary clothing except what is you know except what is absolutely necessary for decency. You know, you see these runners. You know, you won't see an Olympic runner running in a bunch of heavy layered clothing. Uh, you know, unless maybe they're here in Minnesota and they're running, but no, even then, even then, in the cold weather, they're they're stripped down as much as possible to run their race. I, I think of the Olympic swimmers. You know, you'll never see an Olympic swimming competition where the swimmers are wearing jean cutoffs or baggy trunks. What do they wear? They wear those really, really tight, tight, tight swimsuits. Right? Some of those swimsuits are scientifically designed to reduce drag in the water. In fact, you don't even see leg hair on most of those Olympic swimmers. Underarm hair, you ever notice that? They, they put their arms up, there's like, these guys don't have any arm hair, man. What's the deal here? You know, chest hair, all that stuff reduces drag. It's not just a, it's not just a saying. They've scientifically proven it. It reduces drag in the water. These runners that are competing for a prize, man, they've stripped off everything they possibly, anything that's going to slow them down, man, they don't want that because they're, in it to win. That's the picture that's being presented to you and I. So we're to strip off. We're to lay aside every weight, the Bible says. And the weight is not necessarily sin. It's not necessarily sin because he says weights and sins. So weights is not necessarily sin. What are the weight that he's talking about? It's whatever weighs you and I down, whatever weighs our hearts down or our affections, and it ties us to this world. Jesus, you know, it, you know, some, sometimes you go, well, these pastors, they just say all these things that we're not supposed to do, all these things we're to lay aside. Jesus spoke very much about the weights that you and I tend to carry around that we need to lay aside. Jesus spoke about them. In Luke 21, 34, he says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life and that day come upon you unexpectedly. Man, don't let your heart get weighed down. He also talked about the deceitfulness of riches, that that can weigh down a believer. The pleasures of life can weigh down a believer. He said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. These are things that you and I, they're not necessarily sin. It's not a sin to have possessions. It's not a sin to have, to even to be rich. It's not a sin. But it's the sin if those things start dragging you down and taking you away from your relationship with the Lord. If they become your focus, then it becomes a problem. And so we're encouraged, man, just those things, just lay them aside, man. You're in a race. You're here, you're, you're running to win. So don't let anything hold you down. Not only are we to lay aside every weight, but also the sin which so easily ensnares us. The sin which readily or easily encircles or entangles us. That's what it really means. It's like trying to run in a bathrobe. You ever tried to run in a bathrobe? You know, the, 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 it's going to wind up around your legs. It's going to hinder your progress. Not only that, it's probably going to trip you. You're going to fall because it's, it's all tangling up around your legs. We're to lay aside all sin, obviously. But for each one of us, there are sins that particularly trip us up. There are certain sins that just really, really mess with you and mess you up that may not necessarily mess my... And I'm not saying that I shouldn't do those sins. I've got to understand what I'm trying to say. As we each have, have, have sins that we kind of tend to... They, 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 like they wrap themselves around us and they trip us up in our walks. Those are the ones he's talking about. You know, pride might be one, or lying, or lust, or outbursts of anger. You name it. These, there are certain things that, you, that we particularly get tripped up with. We're to lay those things aside. The Holy Spirit this morning is urging you to lay aside what easily ensnares you. And, you know, you're the one that knows that. You know what ensnares you. You know what stuff always trips you up. Those are those things you're to lay aside so that you can run your race unencumbered. And then he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If our race of faith was like a 50-yard dash, what would we need? 
we would just need just an initial burst of speed and energy to make it, you know, across that 50-yard line. Just to run, you know, to, to make it across that dash there, or that line. But that's not what the race of faith is. I, you and I know believers that have, you know, they've, they've been born again. They've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they are just like, they're just like on fire for Jesus. And they're just a burst of energy. And it's like, wow. But they don't hold. They don't last. That's not what we need. We need faith. We need uh, sustained endurance and perseverance. And that's what the apostle is saying here. Run with endurance. Thayer's Greek Dictionary for Endurance says it's the characteristic of a man, who, or a woman obviously, who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty and faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. And I want you to understand something. Enduring doesn't just mean hanging in there. Man, I'm just hanging. I just got to make it through this time. And then, you know, it's not just hanging in there static, not doing anything, just, you know, gripping onto your faith. It means deliberate, purposeful pressing forward, just continuing on. I've got that race. I've got that end line in sight, and I'm going to press on. That's what it's talking about. What do you and I look at? When you're running a race, I don't know how many of you ran races. My sons were all in marathons, or not marathons, but they ran cross-country. And so I know some others here have ran cross-country, and some of you ran races. What do you look at when you're running a race? Do you look at your feet? Do you look at the scenery? Wow, man, you know, we used to, the kids used to go out to the golf course, and it was beautiful out there. But, you know, are they running around looking at all the trees and everything like that? Are they running around looking at their nearest competitor? Or are they running around looking at where they've been? No. They're looking forward. In the race of faith, if I'm looking at my feet, if I'm looking down or I'm focusing on myself, man, I'm going to miss a lot of opportunities to minister to others because I'm so focused on myself. I'm going to miss opportunities. And not only that, I'm probably going to be so focused downward at myself, I'm going to run right into obstacles. I'm going to have trouble on that course because I'm so inwardly focused. If in the race of faith, if I'm looking at the scenery, you know, wow, check that out, you know, check that out. I'm going to get distracted and I'm going to forget that I'm in a race to win. You know, when you're running a race, you're not looking around at everything. You're looking forward. I might even stop, you know, I might even slow down or start walking or stopping. It's like, you know, I want to spend some time here looking at this scenery. It's so great. It's like, wait a minute, you're in a race. What are you doing? So we don't look at the scenery. In the race of faith, if I'm looking at my nearest competitor, that's not good either. Because then what am I doing? I'm, I might tend to pace myself to their pace. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run maybe just a little bit faster than them. Well, what if they're slowing down? What if they're actually, actually making less progress and I'm comparing myself to my competitor? I might start slowing down too and not even realize it because that's not the standard. You know, we're not to compare ourselves to each other. That's a human nature thing, right? I compare myself to you. Well, I feel like I'm more spiritual than you because I do this or, you know, I read more, whatever. You know, I think, you know, we compare ourselves to each other, but that's a bad thing to do. We're to compare ourselves to Jesus and to his word, not to each other. In the race of faith, man, if I'm only looking back at what I've been through, all the difficulties I had to quote, all the obstacles I had to go over, all those things that were in my path that made it hard for me to run, I'm going to lose heart. I'm going to, I'm going to not want to continue. And as I start slowing down, I'm going to start making excuses why I'm not moving forward. Well, it's because of this happened in my path. That was, you, know, that's, you can't do that in a race. When you and I are running a race, we need to look forward. We need to be singularly focused ahead. And for you and I, running our race of faith, man, we're to be looking forward unto Jesus. The Bible says, the author and finisher of our faith. That word looking there in the New Testament, it's the Greek word aphoreo. I don't know if that's pronounced right, but that's kind of how it looks. (laughs) It's uh, used only one time in the New Testament, just in this place. It's used nowhere else in the Bible. Again, turning to Thayer's Greek, uh, actually it's a lexicon, 
that word looking there, it says to turn the eyes away from other things and fix them on something. Do you sense the deliberateness of it and the purposeful looking? I'm turning away from everything else and I'm just looking at Jesus. And so we're to look, we're to do that in our walk. We're to look away from all those things that could distract us, all those things that could trip us up, and we're to look to Jesus. The Bible says the author and finisher of our faith. Now, when we think of Jesus as the author of our faith, typically we tend to sense, or we think of it in the sense of the originator of our faith, right? I mean, after all, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That faith in you I have, it's a gift from God, the gift of faith. It's nothing that I conjured up in myself. I'm not this great thing of faith. It's God has given me that faith. And that's absolutely true. But Thayer's Greek lexicon here defines author a little bit different. It's the chief leader, the prince, one who takes the lead in anything and thus affords an example, a predecessor in a matter, a pioneer. That's what Jesus is. And we think of Jesus as the finisher of our faith, as in the sense of the completer of our faith, right? I think of it that way. Look at Philippians 1.6. Paul wrote, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Man, I praise God for that truth. Because there are some times I go, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I just, you know, I'm stumbling, I'm struggling. But God's started a good work in me. He started a good work in you. He's going to complete it. He's going to bring it to completion. What a comfort that is. And that's a biblical truth. But again, that's not what's, that's really not what the meaning is here. Thayer's, again, Thayer's lexicon defines finisher here as a perfecter, one who has in his own person raised faith to its perfection and so before us set the highest example of faith. So Jesus, of course, He's much more than just an example. You just follow what Jesus did, listen to what he said, do what he's you know. Jesus is much more than an example, right? But in the context of this passage of Scripture, we're to look to Jesus as our example. That's what the writer is saying here. If you want to learn how to run a foot race or any kind of a race, uh, you know, you want to learn by observing them, how they run, I can tell you one thing, don't watch me. Uh, I remember, you know, in high school, my brother and I used to go at night to this high school, to our, the high school I went to, we, we would go at night to the, to the track out in, out in the field and we would do laps. We would, you know, and that was fun for a little while. Actually, it was never fun, but it was something we did. Um, I was not in, I never ran marathons or, or I was not into cross country. But the only time I liked running and I could run really fast was when someone was bigger than me and chasing me. And then I, I could, man, then I could, I could hit the road. Like if Chad was chasing me or David or someone, some of these guys, man, I'd be, I could, I could run a marathon then. In fact, I'd probably do the 50-yard dash. But <laughs> So don't watch me if you want to run, run a physical race. Well, who would you watch? Well, you'd watch, and you can Google their names. I did this morning, but I couldn't pronounce them. There's some, there's some guys from all over the world that are professional record-winning marathon runners. And, you know, if you want to learn how to run by watching someone, watch them. <laughs> Don't watch me running a race. But for you and I, running the race of faith, and we're to look to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean that Jesus despised the shame of the cross? You know, today, man, the cross is a cool thing, isn't it? I mean, it is a cool thing. Face it. You know, people love to wear crosses as jewelry. It looks great as a tattoo on people's arms. Uh, you know, well, you don't have it on our steeple here, but, you know, it looks cool on a church steeple. We have a cool one over here that's lit up and stuff. You know, it, it's a cool symbol. Well, back then, it wasn't a cool symbol. Back then, it was a gruesome method of execution reserved for the most despicable, wicked criminals. There was shame in the cross back then. It was not something that people wore as jewelry. But Jesus, 
He despised that shame, but he endured the cross, including the shame and the embarrassment of crucifixion. Sometimes that, that shames me because it's sometimes like, am I ashamed of my Lord? Am I ashamed of Jesus Christ? Man, he took all that shame on him for you and I. And why did he do it? For the joy that was set before him. Listen to this Messianic prophecy. Psalms 40, verse 6 through 8. It says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. We talked about that a few weeks ago. My ears you have not opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was the joy of setting captives free from sin of death, sin and death? And it was the joy of being in the Father's will and doing the Father's will. Man, are you a Christian Eeyore this morning or a Christian Tigger? You're like, huh? This guy's this guy's weird, man. <laughs> what is a Christian Eeyore or a Christian Tigger? Those of you that are chuckling probably know, you know, Winnie the Pooh, right? Man, Tigger, what a great guy. I don't think he was ever depressed in any of those stories. I mean, he's just a happy guy. You know, he's full of joy and everything. And he would bring joy to everywhere he went. I mean, just, it was just fun to be around him. But Eeyore, man, on the other hand, woe is me. You know, I just, uh, yeah, praise God this morning, you know. You had to ask yourselves, are you an Eeyore this morning or a Tigger? You know, out of the 12 spies of Israel... <laughs> The ones that were to go in and to spy the land of Canaan, two of them were Tiggers. Joshua and Caleb were Tiggers. The rest, ten others, man, they were Eeyores. Man, woe is us. And those ten Eeyores, they dragged down a whole nation and turned all of them into Eeyores that ended up disobeying the Lord. Man, Eeyores are a bummer. So this morning, are you, a, are you an Eeyore or are you a Tigger? In the faith, do you have joy or not? Well, how do you change that? Well, I can tell you how. It's just by fixing your eyes on Jesus this morning. Fixing your eyes on the prize. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was on the cross, and you guys know the story. There's the two thieves on each side of the cross, and, and uh, they started out anyways mocking Jesus and saying, Hey, if you're the Messiah, you know, Get down, save yourself, save us too, you know, and they're saying stuff like that. And later on, in one of the gospel accounts, one of the thieves starts rebuking the other one. And he says, man, you know, you and I, man, we, we deserve what we got. But Jesus, man, he's, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. And he turns to the Lord and he says, remember me, Lord, when you enter your kingdom. Remember what Jesus said? Man, today, very verily I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we can learn a lot of truths from that exchange between the thief and Jesus. There's a, there's a whole other Bible study in that by itself. But think about this. Do you think it's just possible the Father was maybe giving Jesus a glimpse of the prize while he was hanging there on the cross, while he was enduring, hey, there's a prize coming. There's glory coming. It could have been. There's the Father was just blessing the Lord, Jesus, as he was on the cross. You know, God does that for you and I sometimes. He does it for me. I get discouraged sometimes. And, uh, and then the Lord does things to just, just bless my socks off. If you're this morning, if, you're, if you don't have joy, man, ask the Lord just to reveal his glory, to reveal a prize to you. He'll do that. He'll give you glimpses of glory meant to encourage you, meant to sustain you through your walk. So it's not without hope if you're like, well, I'm a Neor this morning. Well, no, you, you, you can be a Tigger this morning by turning to the Lord. Moving right along. Man, we've finished two verses already. <laughs> We're looking at the second. Yeah, it's a good thing that baptism's at 2 p.m., isn't it? We got time, so we'll, we'll pass out pizzas and stuff and, you know. Moving on to the next division, discipline for the race. If you're going to run a, run a race, man, you've got to be disciplined. It's not always easy as we, we'll look at it. Verse 3, 
For consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we, might be, that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline for the race. And it starts out with saying, consider him or or think over or ponder Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Man, if anyone had an excuse to become weary, if anyone had an excuse to be discouraged in his soul, didn't, wouldn't Jesus be the one? I mean, listen, had, he had half-brothers and sisters. They didn't even believe he was the Messiah. They thought he was crazy. They would come, try to come to get him at different times, like, we've we got to bring him home. You know, this guy's just, he's out there. Everywhere Jesus went... Someone was waiting, trying to entrap him in his words, trying to catch him in some. Can you imagine every waking moment, any time you go out and you step out of your house, there's someone like, okay, let's see if we can trip this person up. Let's see if we can get him to say something wrong. Can you imagine that if they interviewed you all the time and, aha, we caught you, you said that wrong. Man, that's what Jesus endured. Everywhere he went, they were trying to trip him up. People mocked him. They spat on him. They cursed him. They pummeled him. They flogged him. They crucified him. Satan tried to thwart his efforts at being the Messiah and even tempt him to sin. I mean, if anybody could be bummed out, if anybody could be discouraged, it would be Jesus. And yet, he endured the cross. He remained under that situation that the Father put him in, or allowed him to be in. He didn't shrink back. He didn't flee from his circumstances. Why? Because he was disciplined. He kept running the race his father set before him. And the author says here, you've not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. None of us have resisted sin to the point of shedding our blood. None of us have. At some point, we succumbed to the temptation and given in to sin. Think about this, though. Jesus never gave in to sin. He never gave in to temptation, even to the point of shedding his own blood. He was victorious over sin, and he did that for you and I. Now, these Hebrew believers that the writer is writing to, they were tempted to give up. They were tempted to throw in the towel and return to Judaism. You know, they had endured persecution all the Christians in that, in that generation had endured persecution from the Romans. I mean, the Romans were out to get them. But not only that, these Jewish, these Hebrew believers were being persecuted from their fellow Hebrews because they were considering them as having you know, being, been apostate to Judaism, that they were abandoning Judaism. And so they had it coming from two different directions. And the apostles' words to them, don't give up. Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. Don't give up. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's a quotation taken out of Proverbs 3, uh, verses 11 through 12. What is the chastening of the Lord? You might have in your own mind, well, this is, I know what the chastening of the Lord is, and you might have your own idea of it is. This is what Thayer's Greek lexicon says. The whole training 
and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals, and employs for this purpose now commands and admonitions, now reproof and punishment. It depends on the circumstances. It also includes the training and care of the body. The whole idea, the whole sense of it, it's what a father does to train up and to raise a child to be faithful, to be respectful, to be responsible, and to be moral. You godly fathers, you know exactly what you're raising your children, you're training them, you're disciplining them to become successful adults. Listen to what God said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 5. He says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. God allowed the children of Israel to hunger. He allowed them to go for a time where they were getting very, very thirsty. He didn't give them a fresh change of clothes every, okay, it's, it's you know, school season started. Here's a new, new set of clothes for you. No. They kept the same clothes for 40 years. Now, he made it, they miraculously didn't wear out. And God miraculously fed them manna. And he miraculously gave them water from a rock. What was God doing? God was teaching the children of Israel to not be self-reliant. Not to look at any other things to rely on, but to look to him daily. That's what God was doing. That's what the chasing is of the Lord is for you and I. God wants you and I to rely on Him daily, to look to Him. Is the Lord teaching you to wait this morning? Is He allowing you to go without for a certain period of time? What He's trying to do is He's trying to get you to rely on, not lean on your own understanding or on your own efforts, but to rely on Him. And that's what He was trying to do with the children of Israel. You know, parents... I, you know, I, we raised four kids, and uh, many of you are in in the in the throes. Some of you have already done that. You've read your 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 grandparents already. Um, some of you are right in the middle of of raising children. Some of you are about to be raising children. And I tell you, parents, they need great wisdom. It's not an easy task. They need wisdom. I, I can't say this is the exact thing to do, and everything will work out fine. You know, I used to think that when I was younger. I know exactly how a parent should raise their kids, and I'm going to do it that way. And then it's like, wait a minute. I guess I don't really know all the answers. The older I got, the less I know. I realize we need great wisdom raising and training children. But let me ask you this, mom or dad. What's a successful child in your eyes? What's your definition of success? Is it that they have a good job, good career? Is it that they, you know, eventually can buy a house and be, you know, they're not going to come back and be, you know, living back with mom and dad again? You know, what's your definition of success? And I bet you if I were to pull people in the room, I'd probably get a lot of different responses. As godly parents, though, I hope, I hope that as you are training your children as they grow and mature, that you're training them to become more and more reliant upon the Lord. That they're developing a daily reliance upon the Lord. Doesn't mean you withhold food from them. Well, when they're teenagers, yeah, it's okay to do that. <laughs> it's impossible to withhold food from teenagers when they're growing up. No, just but you understand the, 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 the concept. It's getting them, and, and you know, you need wisdom. You seek the Lord, because I can't say, well, this is exactly what you've got to do to make that happen. But that's the goal for successful children. You know, some of you want the best for your children. We all want the best for our children. But you know what the best is for our children? Is that they love Jesus Christ, and that, they, that they're going to live faithfully for him, that they're going to run their race. That's, that's, that's success. They may not be successful in the eyes, in the eyes of the world, but that's success in God's eyes. I hope it's success in your eyes as well. 
So that's what we do, right? We train them. We prepare them for running their race of faith because pretty soon the baton's going to be passed on to them. We want them to carry the faith. We want them to carry that torch, carry the baton. So the chastening of the Lord in one aspect is training and disciplining us for the race, but there's also this corrective aspect to it as well when we're sinning. Now, I say corrective because I don't think it's punitive. What I mean by that? Well, our sins were paid for on the cross, right? Past, present, and future. Jesus took the punishment for our sins. He doesn't punish you when you stray. But there are repercussions and consequences that sin cause. Listen to Numbers 32.23. Be sure your sin will find you out. God's not standing like, aha, yeah, you just blew it there. You know, he's, not, he's not watching you, waiting for you to, strip, to, to mess up, to reveal your sin. No, your sin's going to find you out. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. God's not bringing reaping on you. It's your sin that's bringing reaping on you. It's whatever you're sowing is going to bring a reaping. Numbers uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 2.19. God was speaking to the whole nation of Judah, and they were steeped in sin at this point. And he says this, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. The consequences of our sins what's going to rebuke us. Now, I may, you, know, you may have a child, and you've, you've warned them not to touch the hot stove, and then they've kind of like, kind of blew off your commandment or your, your directive or whatever it is, and they've, they've decided to disobey you and touch that stove, and they burn their fingers. Well, you know, at that point, they're, they've got a painful consequence. You don't need to go there, well, now I need to spank them on top of it because they're already they're in pain. You know, they've, they've learned that, oh, man, I should have listened to Dad because, man, I, I touched that stove, and ow, <laughs> I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> Disobedience itself, excuse me, the pain and the consequence itself is a great teacher. Now, it's better to learn by avoiding those things. It's better to learn not to sin, right? It's better, it's better to look at these guys and go, you know what? I'm not going to do what David did you know, when he fell into sin. I'm not going to fall in. You know, it's better to learn that way. But how many of us learn that way, to be honest with you? A lot of us learn by just we, we sin. We make mistakes. We do things wrong. And we end up carrying the consequences. There's a lot of us that carry scars from the sins that we've committed. Praise God Jesus paid the price for him. I mean, praise God he's paid the price for him. And when we confess our sins, the Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from those things. But sin has consequences. Disobedience has consequences. And God allows us to bear those consequences sometimes, most all the time, not to punish us, but to correct us. And we're going to talk more about that when we get into the next portion of Hebrews chapter 12. But let's continue on here. It says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had father, human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? If you were ever in sports, you probably had a coach. And they would train you. They would correct you when you were doing something that wasn't right. You were doing something the wrong way or whatever. They'd correct you. They may have seemed harsh. They probably seemed unreasonable to you. But what were they doing? They were trying to turn you into a winning athlete. That was their whole purpose behind it. And you respected them. I would venture to say you respected your coaches. Parents, I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of training and correcting your children for fear that you're going to lose their respect. Because it's just the opposite. They'll respect you more if you, if you deal with them with discipline and correction. If you do it in love, of course, right? If you do it in love and not in anger. If you discipline them consistently and not unpredictably. That's the worst thing a kid can do. You know, they never know. One minute you're okay with something, the next minute that's really dad or mom flew off the handle and they're, 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 they've gone ballistic. You know, that's, 
Kids need that predictability. They, they need that consistency. If your motive is to turn them into Christians that are going to run their race and win the prize, I guarantee they're going to respect you. They'll honor you in later, later life. It says, For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. I, I like the King James for this verse. It says, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Our human fathers chastened us for their own pleasure. What is he talking about? How many of you heard the phrase or understand the phrase, If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. All right. I grew up in a home like that. You know, uh, my dad worked. I don't know. He would time he would come home. Uh, you know, five o'clock or whatever. He would come home, and uh, uh, you know, we got out of school or whatever. It was in the summertime, and we were doing stuff. And and if we got into trouble, and my mom got really upset, you know, the famous line is, "Wait till your father gets home." And uh, so we would. We'd wait till our father would get home. We'd be waiting at the curb for our father. You know, it's like when he drove up to the driveway. It's like get out of the car. I mean, you know, you ran up to him. Hey, you know, trying to kind of offset. <laughs> Mom's really upset right now, but let me explain why. You know, you, you try to kind of, I was a schmoozer back then, so, you know, trying to, trying to get out of getting into trouble and stuff. Uh, you know, and, and our fathers, man, and you guys, you understand this. I'm sure you do. You want, you come home, you've had a hard day. It's been stressful. You've worked. You want to come home to a quiet and peaceful house, don't you? I mean, I do that, right? I wanted to come home to a quiet and peaceful house. But if you come home and all of a sudden your wife is starting to say, uh, you know, uh, your son or your daughter. You know, you always know when they say your son or your daughter, you know, it's like they're like they're your children. You know, it's like here. You know, that actually happened with God and the children of Israel. Or excuse me, with Moses and God. They had that exchange. You know, Moses is up on the mountain with, with the Lord, and uh, he's, God says, uh, you know, you better come down. Your people are doing this. And Moses is like, what do you mean my people? They're your people, God. And they had this like argument. No, they're your people. They're my people. Well, when a mother or a wife says that to her husband, they start saying, your son or your daughter did this. Uh, you know, you come home, you wanted a quiet and peaceful house, and your wife is not quiet and peaceful. The kids are clamoring, trying to tell you what, what happened. They're trying to give you that sight. And all you want is peace and quiet. Well, what do you do? <laughs> You're going to use corrective action. <laughs> You're going to discipline them for your pleasure, right? I mean, I want peace and quiet. <laughs> you guys, it doesn't matter if they were wrong. Mama ain't happy. Huh, I ain't happy. You know, you know, you guys understand that. That's what our human fathers did. You know, they, parents don't always, and this might be news to you kids, parents don't always chasten for the right reasons. Sometimes, because they're human, they make mistakes. They don't always chasten for the right reasons. But our Heavenly Father is not like that. Our Heavenly Father doesn't chasten us for the wrong reasons or for His own pleasure. He chastens us for our profit that we may become partakers of his holiness, it says. Now, no chastening, it says, seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, training for a race, if you're in football, running drills, whatever, restricting your diet for a competition, it's not fun. It's, it's hard to find joy in those kind of situations, right? Not impossible, but it's hard. It might even be painful. But you know what I love about this passage of Scripture? That word afterward, but afterward. You know what that means? That means that there's a time frame to what you and I are going through. It's not permanent. It's a time frame. It's temporary. And there's a timing aspect to God's chastening. Listen to this, and this is actually from Proverbs 19, so I was reading, you know, trying to get prepared for next Thursday, or two weeks from now, Thursday. Proverbs 19, verse 18, chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. And of course, as, as parents, it's like, train them while you can, while they're moldable, while they're in, in under your influence and stuff, while there's hope. But you know what that is? God's all speaking to parents, and so when I look at that, I go, you know, if God 
is chastening you or I, that means there's hope. He hasn't given up on us. So some of us go and endure chastening. I want you to encourage you. That means that there's still hope. God still hasn't given up on you. It says, nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness by those who've been trained by it. God's chastening, even his correcting, it's not for our destruction. It's for our benefit. It's to produce fruit, lasting spiritual fruit. It says to those who have been trained by it, those who have been exercised by it. You know, I've known people, you probably have too, that that peaceable fruit of righteousness eludes them. It's like they keep going over the same thing, the same ground. It, it, it's just like a, it's a circle in it, and, and they're never, there's no joy in their lives, and it's going over and over and over. Why? Because they're resisting what God's trying to do in their lives. They're not submitting to the Father. They're resisting it, and so they lose that opportunity to have that peaceable fruit of righteousness. The key to being blessed in training is not to resist it, but to submit to it. Ask the Lord to help you grow through it. You know, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Uh, you know, think about this. David, you know, this young shepherd boy, right? He's out there watching the flocks at night. And, uh, man, this, this lion comes up, snatches one of the lambs. Oh, what a bummer, man. It's like, this is ruining my perfect... I was writing psalms, these beautiful... And then I got this deal I got to deal with. And, I mean, who would want to take on a lion? I mean, you know, that's pretty some, That's pretty serious, right? And yet he fought a lion and saved the lamb from the lion, right? Same thing happened with a bear. Uh, that's probably be worse. I don't know what would be worse. Bear or lion, bear or lion, they're probably both bad. He fought a bear. Now, those times when he was under... Do you think he was like, man, this is awesome. This is great what I'm going through. No, I bet you it was stressful. And I bet you he didn't enjoy it. And it was actually pretty dangerous. He might even got hurt in the fight. But you know what? Later on, that prepared him to fight a Philistine. Later on, that gave him the courage to stand up to a giant named Goliath. The things that you and I are going through, sometimes it's not pleasant. Sometimes it's hard. But God's trying to produce fruit in you. So, so don't resist him. Submit to him and allow him to do that work in you this morning. I want to encourage you with that. We're actually not going to continue the rest. I'll do the rest next week, so we'll, we'll go through the last um, thing. So, unless you guys want to, we, we got till two. But no, I'm just kidding. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, Lord. I thank you for each and every person here, and Lord, I know that we're all in different uh, different spots in our race. Lord, some of us are going through a, a straight stretch and things maybe even downhill. Maybe the wind is at our backs and things are going pretty good. Praise you. We thank you for that. Lord, I know that there are others that, uh, boy, they've got some obstacles in their path. Some of them have been running uphill for a long time and the wind is just, it's just, just taking. They're sapping all their energy right now. Father, I pray for each and every person, Lord, for each one of us. Lord, I pray for those that are at this point right now going through chastening. Lord, I pray that they might understand that it's not punishment. It's correction if they've done wrong. Lord, if it may not even be that, though, Lord, it may be just that you're trying to get them to rely more and more upon you. You're wanting to produce that fruit, that peaceable fruit of just righteousness, just looking to you, Father. And, Father, I pray that you would accomplish that work in each one of them. Lord, we thank you that those trials that we go through, that they are temporary. And Lord, we thank you. I pray that for those that are maybe discouraged this morning, maybe facing just, just as things just don't look too good, Lord, that they might keep their eyes on you. Lord, that you might give them a glimpse of your glory and of the future that awaits them, Father, that you might encourage them with joy this morning, Father. We thank you that you do those things for us because you love us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.